Hello and welcome back to the second season of All About Aid, brought to you by From Buckets to Rain Barrels Project at Carleton University. As you know, I'm the host and editor of this podcast and blog named Robbie Venus, and I just wanted to share with you how excited I am about this upcoming season. Um, I have some really interesting interviews lined up with some great academics and non-academics. And I also am working on a documentary episode about my research project and the implications that we have and some of the challenges we face and other things related to international development on a very local scale within the academic context. So look forward to hearing about that as soon as possible. I have lots of audio to get through and as a one person show, uh, it takes a long time to edit, but... It's coming, I promise you that. This week, I had a really awesome opportunity to sit down with the director of the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University, and that is Professor Teddy Sammy. So Dr. Sammy got his Master's in Economics from the University of Toronto and his PhD in Economics from the University of Ottawa. And he focuses mostly on international trade and its relationship with international development through an econometric perspective. Uh, He's been published in journals such as Applied Economics, the Journal of International Trade and Economic Development, as well as Peace Science, the Journal of Conflict Resolution, and Third World Quarterly. He focuses mostly on state fragility at the moment, though we don't really talk about that much, only for a brief period. But he also has spent a lot of time talking about the appropriate metrics for evaluating the effectiveness of aid and whether or not those metrics are really useful to use when we're trying to truly understand what is the value added of each dollar donated by a donor country within an aid infrastructure. It was a really fascinating conversation, and he's just an extremely intelligent individual with incredible amount of understanding and information on this topic. So he's a great resource, and I really enjoyed talking with him. I should note that this episode actually was recorded in November of 2017, so some of the information is a little bit late or delayed, but it is still an important and fascinating conversation nonetheless. So, without further ado, I hope that you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Teddy Sammy. Hi, I'm here with Professor Teddy Sammy. Thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Thank you. So I'm wondering if maybe you can provide us with a little bit of background about yourself and maybe how you got involved in uh, your research field. And then maybe give us a little bit of explanation what that research field is. Okay. Um, so I'm an economist by training. Uh, I, I studied, I've studied economics uh, at university for my, my undergraduate degree at the graduate level as well. And, uh, and then after my PhD, I was hired at the Norman Patterson School uh, to teach in the development field, essentially. Uh, and so I'm a development economist as well as a trade economist. Initially, most of my work uh, focused on trade and labor issues, but over time, I've become more and more interested in development issues. And I think part of it is because of my background. I grew up in a developing country. I was born and raised in Mauritius, so I grew up 
in a small island off the east coast of Africa, which is a very interesting place because it, it is considered by many to be a successful country in the sense of having gone from, you know, fairly narrow economic opportunities to one that grew significantly. And part of it was that it was a country that embraced globalization and focused a lot on trade and investment. Uh, so I became increasingly interested in, in figuring out how this happened and whether, you know, it was a unique case. And, and part of the interest also is because uh, of a proximity with sub-Saharan Africa. It was always intriguing to me, at least earlier, why so many countries in, in sub-Saharan Africa were not able to achieve the same level of success. And obviously, as many people know, uh, sub-Saharan African countries have also received large amounts of foreign aid over time. So it was a bit of a, of a puzzle in a way. Uh, and I think this is something that many other people have, have looked into. Uh, namely, why is it that, that these countries, despite receiving large amounts of foreign aid, were not able to achieve the same level of success as the Mauritius or many other uh, Asian economies? So... Over time, I became increasingly interested in foreign aid or what we call development assistance. Um, I was also asked to teach a course on development assistance uh, at NIPSIA, where I teach at the Norman Patterson School. So over the years, I've become more and more familiar with that literature, and I also did some work on it. So that's, mm -hmm. in a nutshell, how I ended up becoming more and more focused on foreign aid. But, but aid is only one part of, of what I do. I'm also very interested in fragile states. Uh, state fragility, um, and there are implications, obviously, for aid effectiveness. Over the years, I've worked on other issues such as taxation. Right now, I, um, I have a small project on income inequality uh, that I'm still working on. All these things are interrelated in one way, which is to understand why some countries do better than others. That, that's essentially the way I look at this, is, is to try to figure out whether there are lessons that we can learn uh, from some countries that have done well. And I think, you know, taking an, uh, an economics point of view is valuable as well because it's kind of trying to establish metrics and, you know, create some sort of baseline by which we can evaluate one country in comparison to another, mm -hmm. which I think, you know, has both of its both benefits and faults as well because there, in some degrees there are some things between countries that are really can't be compared. Yeah. And mm -hmm. I think that it's uh, interesting to use this metrics point of view. So um, in your work, as you've been working uh, in the aid field and talking about the difference with how this works, what type of metrics do you usually like to use in your, uh, in your arguments for how to compare and understand what's going on within a country or uh, within a, a region of groups of countries or however you may have been uh, analyzing the data? So, yes, you're right. I mean, as an economist, I tend to come at this issue largely uh, by looking at numbers and statistics. Uh, but it's not the only way in, in which I've done this. I, I have to say that being where I am at the Norman Patterson School, one of the things that we tend to do is to focus a lot on interdisciplinarity. So, as an economist, I have worked over the years with other people from a political science background. I've worked with a sociologist. But but you're right in the sense that much of the work that I've done is, is based on uh, on numbers and data. It's a very data-driven approach. And I'll be the first one to admit that, you know, data and numbers don't always give you the full picture. 
And so we have to be very careful uh, when we use that approach in order to try to answer questions. But at the same time, we cannot ignore the reality from the donor perspective, which is really based on assessing whether aid is effective or not. Mm -hmm. And one of the ways in which you do this is by looking at numbers. It's not the only way, uh, but it is an important one in the sense that what it allows you to do is to actually compare across countries, which is not always easy, right? Mm -hmm. So from a qualitative, if you were to focus, let's say, and, and, and this is really we're going to get into research methodology now, because if you start focusing on particular cases, the problem then is that what you observe may be unique to these cases, right? On the other hand, if you look at a larger sample of countries and you're focusing on numbers, then the question becomes how much can you generalize? So there is this issue of internal and external validity in what we do. And I, I'm of the view that all these methods together can contribute. So mm -hmm. I see them as complementing each other. Mm -hmm. uh, but as I said, I, I'm the first one to recognize that, you know, what we do from a large and econometric analysis is not going to give us everything we want. So you'll see that in some of the work that I've done, I, I haven't even used large an analysis. It, it was more sort of a case-based approach. And, and I'm talking here about the work that I do on fragile states. We, mm -hmm. we don't focus only on the data. We also look at individual cases. Mm -hmm. Well, I think with fragile states in particular, it's a, a very specific type of problem to be analyzing because, first of all, our definition of what a fragile state is is quite vague. I recently had um, Dr. Evan Hoffman on the podcast who has done some work in fragile states in terms of conflict resolution and conflict prevention. And one thing that we talked a lot about was that coming up with a definition for what's a fragile state versus a failed state versus a weak state is still a uh, relatively gray area. And then on top of that, what makes them, what puts them into that position is also extremely uh, nuanced and textured as well from country to country. But one thing that you were mentioning in there um, in terms of in terms of looking at things from more of an econometric perspective is this idea about aid effectiveness. And so for me, my understanding of aid effectiveness is, you know, how much uh, value do you get out of the per dollar given to a country? So could you maybe go into a little bit more detail about what that really means and where uh, where the field is at and what the ideas are all about? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that economists have done, and there's a huge literature on this, when they measure aid effectiveness, is to actually look at the impact of aid on growth. Growth is really the metric that many economists have used, and it's largely because the data is available for, for all countries. So it's an easy, uh, it's an easy metric. Uh, everyone produces growth numbers, and we know how much aid countries receive. The problem with this analysis is that it's very difficult to know what the counterfactual would be. So mm -hmm. we don't know whether these countries would have grown if they did not receive aid. So in trying to answer this question, we have the first problem is not knowing what the counterfactual is. Another way of thinking about this is to say, well, how do you know that what you're observing is actually because of aid, right? So you can control for many other things which is what most economists will tend to do. Um, but it's still not clear whether you're capturing what, what you, you're trying to do. 
and there are all kinds of challenges there. Uh, one is that it may be that the, um, that the result that you're observing is not accurate in the sense that the relationship is reverse. So it could be that aid is going to countries that are growing faster. So that growth itself is determining how much aid a country is receiving. So the relationship could be going the other way. So how do you disentangle that? How do you control for all the, ca- the factors that affect growth besides aid? Mm-hmm. So there, there's all kinds of issues. And then in the literature, these studies often assumed that all aid was meant for growth, which is not true. There are certain types of aid, you could argue, uh, that would lead to growth in the long term, but other things like humanitarian assistance, for example, are not given for countries to grow. They are coping mechanisms, essentially. Mm-hmm. So there has been, I would argue, an improvement in terms of how people look at these studies now. You know, people have gone back and checked these results. Uh, there was a famous paper, for, for example, that was written by two World Bank economists and that was published in the top journal in economics, which was the American Economic Review. It's a famous paper by Burnside and Dollar which came up with a very interesting result. And yet that paper's result was attacked by other economists who showed that it was very weak. Mm -hmm. And so you've had this debate for a number of years where people have argued that, you know, we don't really have a consensus as to whether aid works or not. I would argue that aid works. And maybe that's something that others will disagree. I think that aid has worked and there are many examples. And I think the latest econometric results that came out actually showed that it worked. It doesn't mean it works all the time, Mm -hmm. uh, but it doesn't mean that it doesn't work at all either. You know, over the years, I thought that maybe that was maybe we were asking the wrong question instead of asking whether aid works or not. Maybe we should have been asking under what circumstances, under what circumstances does aid work? And I think that would have been a better question to ask. Now, there are people who will say that this approach using econometrics was doomed at the very beginning, right? But we should never have gone that way. We should have looked at this problem in a different, from a different angle. Uh, but I think, you know, I, I, it goes back to my earlier comment that, you know, there is an appetite out there for for all sorts of reasons, to mm-hmm. figure out whether something is working or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, because we make policies, uh, we decide how much aid we give to countries, uh, taxpayers in rich countries are paying, in a way, for the aid that is given to poor countries, and so people want to see results. So if you cannot tell them that aid is actually having a positive impact, why would they want to pay for it, right? So ultimately, you need to be able to show uh, that you're having an impact. And so there are different ways in which you can do this. Aid growth regressions are one way, but there are many other ways. You can do case studies. You can also do what is now becoming more and more popular in the literature, which is randomized controlled trials. So there are many people uh, who are working on these kinds of approaches and using them. And in some cases, they are able to show uh, pretty positive results. So Ultimately, you have many different ways in which you can get to the to the issue, uh, and it's a question of using them together to get a better picture of what is going on. In conclusion, I, I would say that you know I I still think that the effort has to be made. I mean, we mm-hmm. can't just give up and say no, we cannot measure this, and so we're not going to bother. Yeah, I definitely agree. Yeah. But there are a few things in there that I uh, you know you said a lot, so mm-hmm. I'd like to. 
uh, untangle a little bit. So the first thing that you used is that, uh, or you said, was that the most common um, metric cited as the means of defining whether or not aid is effective is, is using GDP growth. Yeah. And I'm sure you're familiar with uh, William Easterly, the former World Bank economist. And so in his 2005 book, uh, White Man's Burden, one of the things that he spoke about at relative length was actually using this metric of GDP growth as a means of defining whether or not aid is effective. Because when we look at GDP growth, it's really, really difficult to have a large enough time frame to evaluate it to see how that aid's effective. So let's, if we looking, if we look, let's say, at a five-year period under a certain World Bank program, let's say, or a UN program where a country is receiving X amount of aid, and then we see that within uh, a year of the program beginning, their GDP rises to 6%, because that seems to be the point that all economists love. As you were saying, though, there's not really a way for us to know if that's resulting from the aid. And so my first question to you, and then I'll get to my second question after, but my first question is if we can't really use GDP growth as a well-defined tool to discuss development and essentially poverty alleviation, because that's really what the target is of the of these aid programs, then why does it continue to be the most cited uh, metric? And what would maybe a better metric to use if if growth is uh, is inherently flawed? So there, there are a couple of things. Um, there are studies that have actually used growth, but in a different way. So they've used growth, but they look at longer time periods. So you could actually run a regression or, or do the analysis by looking at the long-term impact of aid on, on long, long-term growth, essentially. So you would be extending the period of analysis instead of using a five-year period when you construct your, your data, you could look at longer periods. In fact, even Easterly has a paper that does that, even if the main focus of the paper is to actually criticize the Burnside dollar study, but he does look at at longer time periods. So you could do that. There are a few papers, but not many. I know, for example, that there was a study done that looked at the Human Development Index mm -hmm. as a metric. So instead of looking at growth, they were looking at a more holistic measure of development. But I think what's interesting, and I think this is where uh, the the later studies have been in my view, more helpful, is that researchers have actually looked at specific types of aid and specific outcomes. So, for example, they've looked at aid that goes towards education, and they've looked at the impact on education outcomes, such as enrollment rates or completion rates in school. I think those types of approaches are more helpful because they allow for what we call a cleaner identification strategy. So mm -hmm. there's a cleaner path from your cause to your effect in a way. Mm -hmm. And so I think these studies are probably better. Um, and, you know, there are studies that have differentiated between different types of aid, mm -hmm. uh, short-term versus long-term. So there are ways in which I think this literature has evolved and improved. Uh, which is why I think the effort needs to continue because the more we think about these questions, the more we're going to find ways in which we can answer them better. And 
it will also lead us to think about better ways of collecting data, which is important. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And yeah. so I think, yeah, I think it's a really interesting idea, kind of having a more target specific approach to uh, you, like to the metrics, because when you, you know, devise a program that's for, let's say, improving sanitation, and then you have the number of toilets that have been put in place, then, uh, or, you know, the amount of hand-washing programs that have been created, the number of people who are sick has decreased, that is more of a direct correlation. I think that's more valuable. Um, And so now to just go back to what you were saying previously, when you're talking about this idea of of effectiveness and you're saying that we want to figure out what works, I I would like you to maybe elaborate a little bit on what you mean when you say that something works. Well, at, at its most basic, what I, what I mean that something works, I mean, is it having an impact on the lives of the poor? Because ultimately, aid is given to low-income countries. I mean, middle-income countries also receive aid, but Primarily, you're looking at at situations where people and countries need aid the most, and you're trying to make a difference in their lives. So for me, impact or effectiveness is simply about whether the money or resources that are being devoted to foreign aid, are these things actually making a positive difference in people's lives Mm -hmm. in the country's situations that is what it is Mm -hmm. and so you recently actually published a paper talking about exactly that um i think it was maybe a couple years ago and you were using a the paris declaration for in terms of what aid effectiveness metrics are and so can you go into a little bit of detail about first what those metrics are that were spoken about at paris and then what your findings said okay So the Paris Declaration was uh, signed and endorsed in 2005. It basically provided a blueprint for what donors could do in order to improve the the effectiveness of the aid that they provided. But it looked at the issue of effectiveness in a very different way from what we've just been discussing. It was not looking at aid effectiveness in terms of an outcome like growth. Uh, It was looking really at what I would argue are processes of how you give aid. So Paris principles uh, had to do with things like ownership, alignment, harmonization. There were two others, mutual. uh, Was it mutual? There was one managing for results. And and there was a fourth one on... um, Mutual accountability. So, so there were four, five principles. So again, let me repeat that: ownership, alignment, harmonization, managing for results, and mutual accountability. Uh, so the idea there was that, so for example, that you would expect to see a better development outcome if countries owned, so recipient countries owned the programs. Uh, in other words, they had more say in what mm-hmm. was being provided to them, or uh, they would work better if donors aligned their policies vis-a-vis the recipient countries that were receiving them. So there was some kind of, you know, partnership between these uh, these countries. So that was the idea behind the Paris principles. Again, it was more about process. It was these five principles. And 
the OECD DAC donors decided that they would have a number of metrics to measure these things. So there were a number of indicators. So in the paper that I wrote with one of my, um, a person that I met uh, through some of my connections, uh, she was a graduate student at the University of Ottawa who had worked on a research paper and wanted to continue working on it after she graduated. So we worked together on, on the paper using indicators from the Paris monitoring process. So Paris Declaration had these indicators and they came up with, in, with certain metrics to measure and the data was available. Uh, it was based on surveys and so we used it to look at whether countries were achieving the goals. Yeah, and so what did you find? When... So this is very different because you know there were not many studies that had used these indicators. Like I said earlier, most studies focused on outcomes like growth or mm -hmm. human development indicators or, or other outcomes. We were looking at the process. And so we decided to check you know, what the data following these evaluations uh, told us. And one of the things that clearly jumped at us was that one, most countries were making progress. So most of the donor countries were making progress, but they had not achieved the targets that they were supposed to achieve. Uh, and so we started figuring out, okay, why is that the case? Uh, and that was a bit complicated in the sense that we had a very small window, which goes back to your question earlier, mm -hmm. but, you know, why is it that we can't observe these? Why is it that we don't observe these things over a longer period of time? Well, in our case, we didn't have a choice because the Paris Declaration was in 2005. The survey data was accumulated over only a few years when we started using it. Mm -hmm. So we only had that very small window to actually do the assessment. So there was no other option. And one of the arguments that we, that we make in the paper is that perhaps we should continue following up and looking at what happens over time because, you know, you could make the argument that what we were looking at was a very short window. But it was still interesting in the sense that there was variation across donors. Mm -hmm. uh, some were doing much better than others. And that prompted us to think about why, why, was, why was that the case. Mm -hmm. And so we, you know, in the paper we talk about you know, what are some of the metrics uh, that we could use to, to assess the variation in their effectiveness. So, for example, one of the things that we find is that generosity of donors or the transparency with which they conduct their operations actually has an impact on, mm -hmm. on these Paris Declaration uh, mm -hmm. metrics. So how did you define generosity? we just looked at how much they were giving. Mm -hmm. So there is a big debate in the literature, as you know, about whether we should give more aid or not. And there is the famous 0.7% target. Mm -hmm. um, Canada, as you know, is a, is a very bad example in that <laughs> regard. So there is that argument about whether more is necessarily better. Uh, and there are people who say, no, what we should focus on is not necessarily more aid, but more effective aid, right? Mm -hmm. Um, but in our case, actually, we found that the donors that were, what, that were the most generous were also the ones that were achieving better outcomes. But again, I, I want to be careful because we're looking at a very different outcome. We're looking at the Paris indicators, right? Mm -hmm. We're not looking at growth. Uh, we're mm -hmm. not looking at HDI or, or other metrics. Well, for me, at least, I think that it's important that we're defining effectiveness in a way that is really couched in the uh the needs of the recipient the recipient country 
I think that defining an effectiveness based on what the donor country has in mind as effective is uh, is fl- inherently flawed. And we can call it a success from a Western perspective, but if it doesn't fit within the definition of success of the recipient country, then how can we call it effective in the first place? Yeah. yeah um, but, I mean, you have to keep in mind that the Paris indicate. The way that the Paris indicators work, at least in theory, there is an assumption there, which is an which is an important one, and that you can perhaps question. There is this implicit assumption that if you give your aid according to certain what I would call good processes, so ownership alignment, etc., the assumption is that these things will actually translate into better outcomes, mm-hmm. right? I don't know actually studies that have done this in a systematic way, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it would be interesting to actually verify this because it is an assumption. So, for example, you assume that if you align your policies with other countries that are receiving aid, that the outcome is going to be better. Or if you harmonize, so if donors pay attention to what other donors are doing and tend to do things that complement each other, that this is going to lead to better outcomes. Mm-hmm. It makes sense, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, why would you think that that's not going to be the case. But it's hard to actually do the analysis exposed to actually find out whether this is true or not. Yeah, no, I think that... um, Well, I think the inherent assumption makes complete sense to me, you know? Like, I think that logically, if a country is receiving money that is directed towards needs that they have identified themselves then it provides them as the agents for change or allows them to be the agents for change rather than whoever the donor country is that becomes the agent for change. And I think that it comes down to uh, some fundamental questions about how we define whether or not aid is an ethical pursuit. I recently published a blog post on my website, which I suggest everyone goes and reads, Um that talks about exactly this idea that that the effectiveness of aid is actually fundamental in defining whether or not something is uh, whether or not aid or bilateral aid is a uh, an ethical pursuit because if it's not effective and we're not meeting the needs of the people that we're giving the money to then how can we say how can we use the moral argument as a means of doing it because to me if we're just giving money and then not seeing the results that we want to, that the country wants to see, then essentially we're, you know, lobbying these countries to, to align with our values rather than allowing them to change and develop as per their own self-defined image. So I'm wondering, um, and we, but in the pre-interview, we spoke a little bit about this idea about um, whether or not aid effectiveness can be used as the defining feature of the ethics of bilateral aid. So I'm wondering if you can comment on that a little bit. I, I'm not sure that there is actually a contradiction or, or whether we should worry, whether, whether we, there is actually a problem with looking at aid effectiveness and the ethical case for aid. Because I think... You know, there is always, there has always been, and I think there will always be a moral argument for giving, right? And so this is true for aid from rich to poor countries as much as it is, as it is 
you know, giving charity, for example, or, or donations to people who are in need, even in rich countries, right? So there's a moral argument for most of what we do in terms of quote-unquote charity, uh, mm-hmm. which some people don't like because we often look at aid as, and, and we say this is not what, what it should be. So you have a moral argument for giving aid. Um, and I think whether aid works or not, we will always have that moral argument, right? But there's also other arguments for giving aid. There's political arguments, there's strategic arguments, there's economic arguments for giving aid, Mm -hmm. uh, which I think as economists, we tend to focus a lot on, which is, you know, we should be giving aid to to countries that need it the most. So we should be targeting countries. And that's not always easy to do because it's often the case that the countries that need it the most are also the ones that suffer from you know, lack of governance, for example. And so donors are reluctant, for mm-hmm. example, to support these countries because they say, well, uh, you know, they need aid, but at the same time, their governments are badly governed. We can't trust them and so on. So there, there's all kinds of complications there. Um, but, you know, you, you can always make a moral case for, for giving regardless of whether that aid is actually effective or not, right? So, would... so whether aid works or not, you will never be able to get away from the moral argument for aid, which is why donors are always providing aid, even to countries that sometimes behave in a way that is not necessarily a good behavior, right? Mm-hmm. So, 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 you know, sometimes people say, well, why are we giving aid to this country? And uh, it's a poorly governed country. Uh, we should not be giving aid. But the reality is that there are people in that country that need aid. Mm-hmm. And so you have to make that decision. Are you just going to forget about uh, these people? Or, or are you just going to you know, keep mm-hmm. providing aid in the hope that some of it will actually reach them? Right? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. I'd like to challenge you a little bit yeah. because um, I 100% agree with you that we should be defining our aid based on the people that need it the most. Um, but when you look at poverty data, for example, people who are in extreme poverty, um, which is defined now as I think a dollar dollar uh, twenty five adjusted for purchasing power, mm-hmm. um, that when we look at the World Bank data and the UN data that they've published, we see that uh, though growth has been has been improved or poverty alleviation has been improving through much of the world. Uh, in the poorest countries, it's actually been declining. And then when we also look, uh, especially when we look at what was happening throughout the 80s and 90s in that period of aid, because I think that's actually a relatively unique period, especially compared to right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but when we look at aid that was given there, the the foreign money was actually almost going directly towards funding corruption. And it became... Uh, very common in these lower income countries to be using that aid to line the pockets of the wealthiest and most privileged in the country. And so the idea about these processes that coming back to this Paris, uh, the Paris Declaration, it seems to be even more fitting because if we are using, if we're defining the value of our aid based on how effective it is in terms of who are the ones controlling the outcomes and whether or not the power is in the hands of the people who are attempting to change or the power is in the hands of the powerful, even within these poorer countries, then I think 
that's a more valuable means of attaining the end goals that we want, which is essentially in, you know, in the grand scheme of things is to have an equitable society where we where everybody is able to fulfill their own defined path without having to worry about, uh, you know, funding their basic necessities. So in your paper, you also discuss a little bit about um, the effectiveness within the Canadian way of, uh, of giving aid. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering if just briefly we can go over a little bit about what the, how the Canadian government gives their aid and then how they ranked in terms of effectiveness given the Paris metrics as well as other metrics that are commonly used. I, I, I don't remember exactly. I have a feeling that Canada was sort of in the middle of a pack, which mm-hmm. is what I remember because mm-hmm. it's it's been a couple of years since I've looked at the data. I think Canada has always been seen in many regards as sort of a middle mid-range donor, both in terms of how much it gives and its performance. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there are, you know, there are obviously many ways. I'm not aware, actually, of many studies that have looked at Canadian aid on growth. There's one that comes to mind. I can't remember what they found. But I don't think Canada would be very different from many other countries in the sense that, you know, it's, it's, it's followed what the Paris principles argue, argued should be followed. Uh, what the basically the Paris principles were. Uh, so you'll see in many documents that came after 2005 that Canada would often say that, you know, we're going to give aid and we're going to focus on, uh, make we're going to make sure that it's given according to the Paris principles. We're going to develop partnerships with countries. Uh, and and that, that's, that was one of the things that came out of the Paris Declaration was that we should think aid we should think of the donor-recipient relationship as a partnership as opposed mm-hmm. to a sort of, uh, you know, relationship where one is imposing on others, mm-hmm. right? So I, I think we've come a long way from the 1980s and 1990s when aid was given to support very often corrupt regimes, uh, you know, in, before the end of the Cold War, it was well known that aid went to regimes that were either for or against uh, certain donor countries mm-hmm. and had very often nothing to do with whether that aid was being used effectively or not. Mm-hmm. I think we've come a long way. Uh, does that mean that it doesn't exist? No, probably not. Aid is always going to be political and that's something that I think most people recognize. So the idea is to try to move it away as much as possible from the political to the economic mm-hmm. aspect. Right. Mm-hmm. So people will say, you know, let's try to focus. So in Canada, for example, we've seen in the 2000s a push towards uh, focusing on countries. So there were different lists of countries that were developed over time so that our modest, our very sort of, you know, relatively small aid budget could be allocated uh, more to certain countries. So you would focus on them. But even there, there was a debate in the Canadian context as to why some countries were chosen and not others. And some would argue that some of the other countries on these lists did not deserve actually to be there. But that was what it was. And so we, we tended to focus our aid on fewer countries. We, we tried, and I think that's what we did, essentially. And we've also focused on particular themes. Uh, feminism. <laughs> and now we have a new policy that focuses on, on feminism. 
And so, you know, these things change over time. You have new governments, new priorities. And I think that, that also poses a challenge in a demo. And I've always, you know, actually, I was thinking about this a lot the last few months is that in a democratic system, one of the challenges that you have is that governments change. Mm -hmm. And so every time you have a new government, they tend to come with new ideas. And, and sometimes that's great. Sometimes what it also means is that you don't have continuity. So if something has started and we go back to this issue of, you know, sometimes certain things take time to happen. Mm -hmm. So if you don't allow the existing policies to continue in a certain direction, you may actually be undermining your own uh, objectives because you're preventing something from happening if it's only started for a few years. Mm -hmm. So, so for example, what, what will happen if in a few years from now we have a, another government that decides, oh, I'm not gonna, going to do this anymore, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and so, you know, this is, I think, a challenge. And, and the question then becomes, how do you make sure that there is actually a general sense that this is the right thing to do and we're going to continue? Mm -hmm. The reality is often not like mm -hmm. that. Right? Ah, so, I so think you have new priorities. I think that when it comes down to it, it's a matter of just continually... Um, have doing a values assessment and doing a, uh, and, you know, revisiting these ideas on a regular basis of whether or not what we're doing is valuable and whether or not what we're doing is having the benefits that we would like to see and that our partner countries or partner nations would like to see as well. And mm -hmm. without that sort of reflection period that's, um, that I think we need to keep having, then we kind of lose the opportunity to really understand the value of the aid. And I think we can become very separated from the people who are actually receiving that aid. Mm -hmm. And so I know you're a very busy man and we, I've held you here for a long time. So I'm wondering if you can just provide uh, some, a question that I like to ask all of my guests is if you can provide a recommendation uh, maybe it's a book or a news article or some sort of journal or anything just in general, something that uh, has helped shape the way that you view the issues and the uh, concepts that you deal with on a regular basis. One book that I have always enjoyed, in fact, I recommend to a lot of people is a book by William Easterly, but not the one that most people know. Not the white man's burden. William Easterly has another book that he wrote a few years before that, which is known as, I think the title, the exact title is The Elusive Quest for Growth. Mm. Uh, it's actually a very interesting book in the sense that it goes to the core of economics, which is incentives. Mm -hmm. and, and it shows you how sometimes well-intended policies will have unintended consequences. And I think this is a very important lesson. There are chapters in the book that also talk about aid, but the focus is not only on aid. It's broader than that. It's more about how we should understand policies and what the unintended consequences mm -hmm. are. It's a very interesting book. It uses economic principles, uh, and it, it's easy to read, which is what I think Mm -hmm. yeah, makes it even more interesting. You don't have to be an economist to read it. Yeah, uh, it's an it's easy to read. It's very interesting, full of interesting examples. I would recommend it. Okay. Yeah. So, um, can you just repeat the title? One it's more the time? elusive quest for growth. The elusive quest for growth by yeah. William Easterly, among many of his books, of which uh, are all pretty great. I, I 
though I don't necessarily agree with all of his points, I definitely appreciate him as a thinker and he's a fantastic writer. So mm-hmm. I'd recommend people to do that as well. Um, and finally, I'd just like to really thank you again for taking the time to sit down with me. Um, it's been a really great conversation. I really appreciate you uh, sitting down and having a little chat. Yeah, thank you. It was a pleasure. Okay, until next time, take care.